Revelation today, uh, and we got a little bit of a big chunk to do today. So as I read the scriptures, just bend your knees, okay? Don't lock your knees, and I want you to pass out. Um, and we've been kind of doing this through our Revelation series, but, you know, Revelation in many ways is all about what John saw. Um, and although we won't see what he saw, uh, we can still imagine it with our mind's eye. And so as we read through this scripture, I would encourage you to close your eyes and imagine what we read. We're going we're gonna to go through chapter 4 and chapter 5. So let's dig in. Starting in 4 verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, and the fourth like an eagle in flight. And the four, four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, he, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of, of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of, in of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. They shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard, the re- heard around the throne and the living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, I thank you for your word today. And although there's so much to go through and think through and explore, so much we could even more explore in these two chapters, God, I pray that as we think about your throne, your beauty, and your greatness, as we consider the lamb that was slain, God, I pray that you would speak specifically to our hearts. God, you know where each and every person in this room is right now, and you know what is here for them today. And so I pray that even as we cover a large chunk of scripture, that 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 would not prevent us from hearing something very specific from you, that would encourage us, that would rebuke us where necessary, and would make us more faithful disciples of your son that follow him in real life. And so God, toward that end, would you unite your power with my weak words and help us to see what we need to see here today. By your spirit's power and in your son's name, I ask these things. Amen. Drama, intrigue, rebellion. Not words that are usually associated with funerals. But they describe some of what happened at the funeral of King Louis XIV in the year 1715. So King Louis was the the kind of the quintessential European monarch in those days. and, And his reign brought about what was once the strength and dominance of the French Empire. And in fact, King Louis, everything we know about France today and everything that we associate with France today can in many ways be traced back to King Louis XIV's reign. King Louis was a great man in his day, and and he took advantage of that. He took advantage of his greatness, living in the luxurious palace of Versailles just outside of France. He had 4,000 servants at his beck and call. He and his noblemen passed their days in luxury between parties and dances and every, every piece of licentious living that you could have when you're the top dog. Louis was known as the Sun King in reference to his royal emblem. And he, he prized this reference to the center of the universe because he believed that his reign and his life summed up the greatness that deserved to be acknowledged as the center. And in that year, 1715, before he died, he made sure and made some commands to make sure that his eventual funeral, when the time comes, should demonstrate the same greatness that he felt he had accomplished. And so he he commanded that his funeral be held in the great cathedral of Notre Dame, the, the prized venue of France, right? He wanted to be held in a solid gold casket, and and he directed that the only source of light within the cathedral 
should be a single candle lit right next to his golden casket. So as to say, he is the source, he is the center, so that the light that would fill the cathedral would be the small light bouncing off of his magnificent golden casket. He would again be the center. Before they planted him in the ground, he wanted to make sure that they remembered and revered his greatness. And the bishop at that time, Jean-Baptiste Mession, took French in high school, so that's the right pronunciation, <laughs> was ordered to give the eulogy. He was the bishop, so that's, that's what you do. And it was expected that this bishop would, would meet the moment and deliver a rousing speech that extolled King Louis's greatness. So there's Bishop Massillon, and he's in the crowd, and there's this dark cathedral lit only by a single candle, and the time comes for him to give his eulogy. He makes his way through the dimly lit cathedral, walks up to the pulpit right next to the casket, licks his fingers, and puts out the candle and says, only God is great and then walks off. Only God is great. Now, Bishop Massillon's short sentence sums up everything we could say about what we see in Revelation 4 and 5. Only God is great. If you're new with us today, we're, we're in a series going through the last book of the Bible called Revelation. And, and we're going through this book not because we're a bunch of crazy people who think that every single headline is proof that the last days are here. Uh, but rather, we're going through this book because we believe that in order to be disciples of Jesus who are faithful to him in real life, well, we're going to need something that these original hearers of this letter would have needed as well. Resilience. We need resilience to be faithful Christians in our context here in Seattle. These, these original hearers of this letter are the seven churches in Asia Minor that Jesus specifically writes these words to. And, and much of what is written in, is done in order to assure these Christians of their hope in him. To remind them, you have a great hope and, and thereby give them resilience to endure pressure and trial hardship associated with being a follower of Jesus. Now, in order to, to build that resilience, so far we've seen Jesus address these churches with specific encouragements and rebukes, right? Uh, that's what we've, we've been doing this since the end of May, I think, and, and, and we've gotten to chapter four. Um, but, and that's what Jesus has done so far. He's given them encouragements and rebukes. And, and finally, at this point in the letter, we get to some of the intentional imagery that Jesus shows the Apostle John, who is a writer, in order to communicate some key truths to these seven churches. And it's worth noting what I just said, intentional imagery. Intentional imagery. What we see today and everything that will follow in this letter is imagery that is meant to describe to these Christians what is really going on in the world and where the world is really headed. So if you'll remember back to, to week one of this series, which I don't, I don't expect you to, I, I will remind you, but I shared that one of the literary genres of this book is what's called apocalypse. Uh, and apocalypse is not what we think of today. We hear apocalypse and we think calamity, end of the world. But it's not really that. The, the literary genre of apocalypse actually means opening or, or unveiling. To have an apocalypse is to have something revealed. And so throughout this letter, 
Jesus is going to peel back the curtain on reality in order to show these Christians and us what is really going on in the world and where the world is really headed. Jesus wants to show them what the truth of reality is. Apart, despite what they might see in the Roman Empire and what you might see in your daily life here in Seattle, Jesus wants to peel back the curtain and show you, here's what reality is. And to peel back that curtain, to accomplish that, Jesus uses intentional imagery that will ignite the imagination of his hearers. If you remember this, as, as Daryl Johnson says in his book, Discipleship on the Edge, around imagery, he says, imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being. Imagery slowly but surely works on the intellect and emotions, changing the way we see and hear and feel reality. And so everything we see in Revelation 4 and 5 is trying to get us to see, hear, and feel a certain truth about reality. It's not there for us to just speculate and try to figure out certain things, but rather to get us to just see what is true about the world and where things are headed. That's what this imagery is for. And these images are, in many ways, also meant to help these Christians and us see and feel what is true about the world. In order for that to happen, in many ways, these will be images that can counter and confront some other images that we see in the world. So that is certainly true of these original hearers. They, they would have seen the imagery in the book of Revelation, and in many ways, it would have countered what they saw in Rome. The imagery in the book of Revelation is, is not piecemeal and random, but rather it is given in order to counter the images of what was in the Roman Empire that would have told a very different and a very false story about reality. So here's another one. Richard Bachman in his book, The Theology of the Book of Revelation, makes this clear. He says on imagery, to appreciate the importance of this imagery, we should remember that Revelation's readers in the great cities of the province of Asia were constantly confronted with powerful images of the Roman vision of the world. Civic and religious architecture, iconography, statues, rituals and festivals, even the visual wonder of cleverly engineered miracles in all the temples, they all provided powerful visual impressions of Roman imperial power and of the splendor of pagan religion. In this context, Revelation provides a set of Christian prophetic counter-images, which impress on its readers a different view of the world. The visual power of the book affects a kind of purging of the Christian imagination, refurbishing it with alternative visions of how the world is and will be. That's a little bit of review. These counter-images are meant for these readers and for us to see what is true about the world despite what we see in our daily life today. And the counterimage of today can again be summed up with Bishop Messiaen's short sentence. Only God is great. In the face of the Roman Empire's greatness and strength, along with the allegiance that it demanded from its people, Jesus starts off his intentional imagery by showing only God is great. 
In juxtaposition to everything that Rome said about the emperor and about their own power and strength, Jesus, through this imagery, sets the record straight about where greatness is really held. And as we get to the end, we'll see how that applies to us. But first, let's, let's explore together the imagery in these chapters and see how Jesus is showing that God alone is great. So chapter four starts off with the writer of this letter, letter uh, the apostle John, being taken deeper into the revelation that Jesus wants him to transcribe. Uh, the entire letter of Revelation is actually pieced together by this further up and further in type of dynamic. So Jesus, if you remember back, first meets him on the island of Patmos, where he is exiled. Uh, and then here we see that there's a door that is opened into heaven that John is directed to walk through. Uh, and later in Revelation, we'll see another door into the temple of heaven, and then another door even deeper into the Holy of Holies. So the, here, the, the Apostle John is, is making his progression into the depths of God's dwelling place. And here, as he sees this door open and enters in, he walks in on a worship service that is already in progress. And in fact, it's been going on for quite some time. But the worship service is striking for him, not just because of what he hears being sung, but also because of what he sees. So you look at the text, John sees a, a throne standing in heaven with one seated on the throne. And this one seated on the throne is, is full of beauty, shown by John kind of stretching his capacity for language in order to describe the beauty. He talks about, well, it's, it's kind of like precious stone, like Jasper and Carnelian. He, he's trying to reach for language that will describe the beauty of what he sees. He sees, a, he sees adorning the throne a rainbow that's like an emerald. Anybody want to draw that? What's he doing there? He's trying to piece together language to describe the beauty of what he sees. You can feel him reaching, straining for language to show that beauty. But more than how God looks on the throne, he, he sees some things around the throne, right? And this is where it gets weird, right? This is the fun part, what we've been waiting for this whole time. 24 thrones are on the side of this great throne, representing the, the, what was the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Jesus. All of God's redemptive purposes and activity throughout scripture is represented on these little mini thrones. And after hearing peals and rumbles of thunder, John notices a, a sea of glass-like crystal that extends out in front of the throne. Now we read that and we think, man, that, that must have been pretty, right? That, um, that would be really calming. Uh, the Pacific Northwest, we have a lot of lakes up here and there's there is something so calming about a lake that's still as glass, right? And it is, in many ways, that calming effect that's meant to be communicated here, but with some deeper meaning. You see, throughout Scripture, water or the sea represents the idea of, of chaos and destruction in a world that's gone wrong. The sea, for these original hearers, was for them an untamable force of nature, that no one was fully safe from, right? And we feel that, like we, sure, go to Lake Clay Elam and go have some fun, but also go out to the Sound. Go out to the Pacific Ocean and we see this is an untamable force of nature. This feels, I'm aware of the idea of chaos and my vulnerability, 
when I'm out in water that feels dangerous, right? Anybody else? You know that feeling? You feel small. And for these readers, that's, that's what it was. The sea was kind of the source of chaos. And in fact, later in the book of Revelation, one of the main characters of evil, evil that we'll get to know is called the beast. He will emerge from the sea. The beast, one of the main characters of evil, evil comes from the sea. This was meant to communicate chaos and destruction and death. And yet here, before the throne of God, the sea is still as glass, undisturbed. God's throne, not just in this imagery, pours forth beauty that John is reaching for words to describe, but also we see here that the one on the throne also holds a strength to, to calm and to overcome chaos. The one on this throne is great and worthy. Under his reign, there is real peace. Whatever the Apostle John and these original hearers would have been afraid of, before the throne of God is calmed. Whatever they felt intimidated by, whatever chaos they felt small in front of, well, in front of the throne of God, that was calmed and contained. This God is over everything. Sea is still as glass. He is great and worthy, but this is shown even further by the strange living creatures that sing praises to the one on the throne day and night. There are around the throne on each side living creatures, one with the face of a lion, one with the face of an ox, the face of a man, and the face of an eagle in flight. Anybody have any ideas what that is? I don't know. I'm trying to ask. It's a joke, guys. Golly. <laughs> The faces of, what are they trying to say? They have a bunch of eyes. What is this saying to us? Well, the faces of these living creatures is meant to represent the pinnacle of creation. So, so each of these faces represent a certain aspect of creation, and each of them at the top in that aspect. So the lion represents in many ways the, the noblest and the most regal of creation. The ox represents the, the strongest of creation. The man represents the, the wisest of creation. And the eagle represents the swiftest of creation, which is why it says an eagle in flight. These are all meant to be representations of the best of creation, the best of what creation could offer. And these verses are showing that the best of creation still gives way to the greatness of God. In other words, only God is great. Only God is great. The worship service that John enters into is all meant to portray the greatness of God above all else. He alone has the beauty that grasps at words to describe it. He alone has the power to contain and calm the most threatening chaos. And to him alone does the pinnacle of creation, the best of what we could offer, give its worship. Everything that is good and best about creation gives way in allegiance and worship to the one on the throne. Only God is great. Not Rome. Not the emperor, 
not the forces of evil that levy themselves against the church. No, this scene in Revelation is meant to counter the supposed greatness and grandeur of what was in the Roman Empire and show these Christians that they are on the right side of history when they worship God alone and reserve their allegiance for him and him only. God alone is great. Now, the Apostle John, in the midst of this great worship, notices an important detail. In the hand of this great and mighty and beautiful one on the throne, there is a single scroll that is sealed with seven seals. And next week, we're going to get into the opening of those seals and what all that brings. And, and this scroll, at least at first, represents a problem. As we'll see over the next few chapters, this scroll represents all the plans and purposes of God in the world. Everything God has done, is doing, and will do is written on the front and on the back of this scroll. But there's a problem. Did you feel the tension or did you just read by it? There's a problem. In order for these plans and purposes to be enacted in the world, it needs to be opened and who's worthy to do this? Who's worthy to open the scroll that contains the purposes and plans of God? Who's worthy to do this? Silence at first. Who has the right and the position and the strength to open this scroll and enact God's purposes? At the sound of that question in heaven, at first, there is silence. No one on the earth, no one in heaven at that point, and no one under the earth felt worthy to open the scroll. And at this silence, the apostle John weeps. Isn't that strange? Is that strange to anybody else? That, that John, to, to be enveloped in the worship service of heaven and to find yourself weeping loudly. Maverick City has nothing on what's going on here, okay? And John is weeping loudly. This is the ugly cry of the apostle John. All because he knows that God's beauty, God's strength, God's greatness, well, if it's not actually enacted through God's purposes, then the world just stays the same. The, the beauty and might and greatness of God will just stay there while this world continues on its dull, gray, chaotic mess. To the Apostle John, the greatness of God not being expressed through his purposes, not through those things being accomplished, is not good news. I mean, he has a high, high where he sees the worship in heaven, and then later he's weeping loudly because he recognizes that if God is not, if no one can open the scroll, if no one can enact God's purposes in the world, then every bit of beauty, every bit of strength, every bit of greatness that he's witnessed, in the end, is not good news. But thankfully, an angel consoles the Apostle John, right? Tells him to look up where he will see God's agent of action. Look up, John, 
and you will see the one through whom God will establish his rule and reign and bring back beauty and order and goodness into this chaotic world. And so understandably, the Apostle John looks up, right? And he sees a lion? No. An ox? No. A man? No. An eagle? No. I mean, we just, we just went through the representatives of the pinnacle of creation. Surely John would see something like that, right? Surely the, the agent of God's purposes and action in the world would have a corresponding greatness, right? Well, John looks up and sees a lamb standing slain. <laughs> a lamb standing slain. Now, now, many of us hear that and think of a, a sheep. We think a lamb and really what comes into our head is a sheep. But no, this is, this is, a, this is a lamb. There are two Greek words that are used throughout the New Testament to describe a sheep and a lamb, and this is the one that describes smallness. <laughs> this is a small lamb. This is a small lamb, and he is cut at the throat while yet stand, still standing. The agent of this great God, the one who has and will enact God's purposes in the world, is weak, yet strong. Slain, yet standing. He has, he has seven eyes meant to portray the, the fullness of wisdom and understanding. He, he sees it all and understands it all. He has seven horns meant to symbolize the fullness of strength he possesses. This slain, yet standing lamb is so strong, so authoritative, he goes up to the throne and with a sense of authority takes the scroll. Again, did you, we probably just read right by that, but it says the lamb that was standing as though slain goes up and takes the scroll. He doesn't wait to be asked to come up. He isn't even necessarily given the scroll, but he goes up and with a sense of authority grabs the scroll of God's plan and purposes without a shred of hesitation as the one who's able to accomplish all of those plans and purposes. What a sight. What a wonder that the, at the center of the universe, at the center of the reality that these Christians need to see and that we need to see is a lamb standing as though slain who has the credibility and authority to take from the throne all of God's plans and purposes. And at this sight, all of heaven sings. The worship of heaven is then directed toward this land. Those same living creatures turn toward him and sing a new song. Something new is happening in heaven. The one who will accomplish God's purposes did so through weakness and death. And he will accomplish God's purposes and yet has already overcome and guaranteed the victory through his sacrificial death. And to this, in the text, all of creation sings. Everything on the earth, above the earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and everything that is in them, to make sure you get everything, is singing to this lamb that is standing and yet slain. Now, I might be wrong, but if I was sitting where you are, I'd probably be like, 
cool. <laughs> That's really interesting, Josh. That sounds really pretty. What in the world does that have to do with me? It sounds pretty. I, you know, I'd love to see like a painting of it, but how's that going to help me in my marriage? How's it going to help me be a faithful Christian at work? How's that going to me, help me get through this struggle and battle with sin? How's that going to help me in my joy and in my depression? What does this mean for me? Well, I'm glad you asked. Remember, these images are, are, are not random. This is not just a random splatter of beauty, nor is it a psychedelic trip from the Apostle John. But it is images given by the Lord Jesus Christ in order to help these Christians and us endure, to make it through. These are counter images to what these Christians would have seen. Again, it puts forward God alone as great and shows that the supposed strength of the Roman Empire is not the world's future, but rather the overcoming weakness of the Lamb. God is great, and his greatness is expressed in the overcoming death of the Lamb. But what about us? We don't care about Rome. We, we, we don't care about Rome. We go to Rome to vacation, right? The strength of their empire is now our tourist, tourist destination. Which there's something there for you. What was once the greatest strength in the world is now the place where people with fanny packs and visors take selfies. There's something, something there for us, but that's beside the point. What is here for us today is what I think is a, maybe a rebuke and an assurance. I'll go through these and then I'll be out of your way. These, these Christians here were tempted to give allegiance to the greatness of the state. But what is, what is the greatness that we today are tempted to give allegiance to? What runs our daily life and in many ways might threaten our allegiance to Jesus? Well, not the state, but I think the self. Not the state, but the self. The individualized, autonomous self runs our life. Life isn't filtered through the state, but rather through the self and the greatness that we assume is there or could be there, right? I could be better. I could be something bigger. I could be an influencer. <laughs> It's always about the self. And yeah, I, I know we live in a political age, and so it seems strange to say that the state doesn't hold as much sway as the self. But, but under deeper reflection, I, I think we see that even our great idol of politics that we certainly have today, it's being energized by the idol of self. It's not the pure polis that we're really driven by. It's the individualized self. We participate in politics only in areas that ourselves are threatened by, assured by, or affirmed by. That's why we care about politics, because we care about ourselves. And the rebuke, friends, of chapter four for us here today is to dethrone ourselves and give way to God alone who is great. Again, Revelation is peeling back the curtain of reality. And here we see that only God is enthroned, not ourselves. Gosh, friends, that you are not the one. And I know you know this rationally, 
But emotionally, vocationally, in your ambitions, what's on the throne? What's great in your life? What is ascribed greatness or potential greatness? If you're anything like me, it's probably yourself. Maybe I'm the big sinner here, which I wouldn't be surprised by. But we all center it on us. It's all about what we can give, the comfort that we can have, the the things that we can accomplish. Our lives revolve around ourselves. And here, chapter four is, is meant to rebuke us so that we dethrone ourselves and really actively repent and say, God, you alone are great. The ambition that I have only carried for myself, I repent of that. And I make you, again, the focus and direction of my real life. You are the center. Again, Revelation is peeling back the curtain of reality, and here we see that in reality, God alone is enthroned, not ourselves. And so if we continue to live on in allegiance to ourselves instead of God, friends, we are living in a false reality. And when you live in false realities, you thereby ruin your chances for wholeness and flourishing. You can't live a fantasy for long and not have it cut you down as a person. Listen to how the Father, uh, Father John Powell describes this in his book, Fully Human, Fully Alive. He says this, through the eyes of our minds, you and I look out at reality. However, we see things differently. Your vision of reality is not mine, and conversely, mine is not yours. Both our visions are limited and inadequate, but not to the same extent. We have both misinterpreted and distorted reality, but in different ways. The main point is that it is the dimensions and clarity of this vision that determines the dimensions of our world and the quality of our lives. To the extent that we are blind or have distorted reality, our lives and our happiness have been diminished. Consequently, If we are to change, to grow, there must be a change in this basic vision or perception of reality. If we are to flourish, we must come back to this central vision as God alone on the throne, the one who's beautiful, strong, and worthy. And if we fail to dethrone ourselves and repent as we doom ourselves to a life lacking wholeness and peace because we're playing into a false reality. We loosen ourselves from the possibility of real peace and flourishing. Listen to how Eugene Peterson says this on worshiping God. Worship is meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in God and not lived eccentrically. We worship so that we live in response to and from this center, the living God. Listen to this, friends. Failure to worship God consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move in either frightened panic or deluded lethargy as we are, in turn, alarmed by specters and soothed by placebos. If there is no center, there is no circumference, people who do not worship God are swept into a vast restlessness with no steady direction and no sustaining purpose. If God is not the center, life unravels. I mean, if you're, I wanna speak directly, if you're not a Christian here, 
I would love to talk with you. I'm so grateful that you're here. But I want you to know that this is why your life feels so overwhelming, so restless and so threatening. It's not because of the things you're just afraid of. You're afraid of those things because the center has been displaced. These images in Revelation rebuke our allegiance to the self and exhort us to redirect our worship to God who is on the throne, who alone is great. Now, finally, an assurance. The call of Jesus throughout Revelation for these Christians and for us is to overcome. But that call to overcome is always sourced from Jesus' own victory. Anytime the book of Revelation says keep going, it sources it within the already victory of Jesus. And the assurance here, friends, is that what we see in Revelation 5, God's plan for your life and for the world is already secure. It's already secure. So where you feel like life is on its hinges and about to go straight off, you can say, no, Jesus has already overcome. And not because you're the one who's getting it done, but because Jesus has. As Christians, we find a steady peace knowing that the weight of the world, the direction of our lives, and the assurance of God's acceptance is not for us to handle, not for us to figure out, not for us to accomplish. All of that has been taken care of through the sacrificial death of the lamb. That's why these living creatures sing is because it's, it's been taken off of your plate. The lamb has won. Many of us get in this place where we feel like we've messed things up too badly. We think we've gone too far or that we've been gone for far too long. But God's grace isn't given through your strength or your track record, but through the strength of the lamb that was slain. I mean, this is a new detail, but no one really even notices John, right? He's an apostle. He's a great Christian, right? No one really notices him except for the angel that tells him to stop crying. What they center themselves on, what they worship is the lamb. Because he's the one who has accomplished and will accomplish the purposes of God. So every area that we've failed, Jesus has overcome. It's not to be figured out. It's been resolved. The lamb has overcome. Our failures can't undo Jesus's victory already accomplished. So the assurance today, friends, is either for the first time or for the millionth time, Come to Jesus. Come run to his grace, his peace, and understand that when you trust in Jesus, when you trust in this lamb, you never have to catch up for approval or perform for love. You can simply be. Some of y'all need to hear that today and get the weight off your shoulders. The victory's It's done. Unlike what our culture says, you don't have to win. You don't have to win. 
Jesus has already done it all. The lamb was slain for losers like you and me. He's won. And because of that, we have the assurance that we can get back up and join this great worship service, singing the praises of the one who alone is great. Let's pray. Father, I, we praise you that you are great. That you are the one who is at the center, that you alone are worthy of our devotion and our allegiance. And God, we pray that, that you would forgive us of every way that we have and probably will continue to try to displace you and become our own center. God, would you, would you heal us of where we've done that and how that's ruined our spirits, how it's cut apart our humanity and give it, given us a burden that we can't handle. You alone can handle the center, and so we pray that you would, by your spirit, make yourself the center again and that you would assure us of the grace that is in Christ, that he, is, he was slain, but he is standing. He has won and because of that, we can have peace and move toward you again. Would you give us that grace and help us and comfort us by your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.